All right, let's start this morning. And uh, we're in 2 Thessalonians, so take your Bibles or your iPad or your phone or whatever you work on right now and uh, turn there. We will start, we're starting chapter 2 today. So um, we're going to actually start with verses 3 and 4 in the the theme of uh, 2 Thessalonians is stand firm. And you're going to see that emphasize that we're going to be challenged to stand firm in our faith this morning. So it reads like this. Put it up there on the screen for you. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, in some of your translations will say the man of sin, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we're going to start this week. We're going to work through this chapter for the next two weeks. It's a a very involved chapter. It's one of the all-time big passages um, in the New Testament. It's one of those end-time passages that everybody talks about or points to and that kind of thing. So we'll we'll be walking through that. Uh, It's phenomenal in what it reveals to us. Uh, Just stuff that we hadn't really known before. And it's maddening in what it doesn't say. Paul says, you remember what I taught you? And I'm going, no, please just say what you taught them. Don't just leave it hanging there. (laughs) And so there's things that we we can speculate at. There's things that we can, you know, kind of know, sort of know. There's other things uh, we're we're left to put the rest of the puzzle pieces together with other pieces in Scripture. By the way, you may want to read in Daniel, especially the second half of Daniel, Revelation. That all ties into this uh, as we go through. I also want you to know that one of the main uh, themes for this morning is faithfulness. Not Jesus' faithfulness. He he does a pretty good job, and uh, he's always faithful. But rather, it's talking about our faithfulness, and you're going to see what I'm talking about in in a minute here. So let's pray this morning, and then we'll ask the Lord for help through His Spirit, and we'll go after it. Lord, uh, you know a lot more about this passage than I do, or anybody sitting in this room. And you know um, the spirit intent of it. You also know where we are in history. You know um, the timeline of history, and we don't. So as we come to this, it's with quite a bit of humbleness and quite a bit of um, trust in you that you will alert us, play things out. We will be aware of times and seasons and know how to anticipate what you want us to do. And we seek you because one of the big pushes here, Lord, is to be faithful in difficult times. And I ask for your help in communicating that this morning in a way that would uh, not just produce life, but also produce steadfastness and joy. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. I want to give you the uh, reference works that I use when I'm studying. Uh, All of this is not just my idea. Uh, And so uh, up front, you see, Keep On Keeping On by Harold Fickett. That was one that I told you about when we were in 1 Thessalonians. So uh, it's a small little reference book. And then uh, The Message of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians by John Stott. He's a grand old scholar and been around for a long time, and so a lot of people use his stuff. Then the commentary that I read through, uh, some of you are on the scholastic side, it's the Expositor's Bible Commentary. That's the one I use uh, for backdrop. It's an excellent commentary. And then the last one is one of the grand old daddies of them all, Unger Bible Dictionary. If you do not know what that is, Uh, Merle Unger was a brilliant man, knew seven languages, spoke them all fluently, and uh, 
he put together a Bible dictionary. It's one of those books you flip them and go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's where that was? Oh, that's what that means? Oh, wow. It's just, and you could get an education in itself just reading through Unger's Bible dictionary biblically. So if you've never heard of that before, I want to put it in front of you as something you should have in your library at home or your library on your iPad or whatever, wherever you tend to have a library these days. All right. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and let's get the context sex here. So I'm calling this the yo-yo effect and you'll understand why in a second because they were a lot like us. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, remember in 1 Thessalonians, we'd been, he'd been talking about the parousia or the second coming of Christ and the things that would be attached to it. So he's referring back to that. And our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Um, so what had happened was Paul had set up things in First Thessalonians, written them a letter, encouraged them and stuff. Rather than getting better, things had gotten worse. And there were some fake things going on that had thrown them off. We'll look at it in just a second. And so Paul shoots off this second letter within weeks. So it's not month or years later. It's just within weeks. Boom. And this second letter of Thessalonians comes out. So when he starts here, he says, Now, uh, about the coming of the Lord and our being gathered to him, we ask you, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Uh, in our jargon, we would say, don't freak out. Right? That would be how we use it. We'd say, don't freak out. Or um, we would say, hey, um, if you're Baloo the bear in the jungle book, unwind yourself. Right? Kind of thing. <laughs> But the idea is don't, don't dwell in anxiety. Don't get all stirred up. Slow down a little bit. Go back to what I taught you before. Remember what I taught you. And he's referring back to 1 Thessalonians. Go back to that. Get back on your feet and uh, get stable again. But they were in a, a, a classic catch-22. And here's kind of what it looked like and kind of what it felt like. In 1 Thessalonians, they were worried because their loved ones had died. They thought Christ was going to come back in their lifetime. And so they were excited. They were watching. And then suddenly loved ones and people they cared about started to dying. And they're like, oh, no, they're going to they, they're miss the resurrection. They can't be a part of it now. So they really got anxious about that. Paul wrote and said, hey, not a problem. The ones who passed are with Jesus already. He will take great care of them. And they will be with them when he comes to get you. So all is good. So they went, oh, okay, that's great. But now uh, the, the setting for the second letter is they were being told that the day of the Lord had already happened and now they missed it. So first of all, their loved ones were missed it. Now they missed it. Someone was saying, hey, the day of the Lord's already happened. The Perusia's already come and you, you're still here. Hello. And they were like, ah, right? And so they were pretty distraught. And that's why uh, Paul sent the letter. Uh, there was a lot of false information flying around in that world. A lot of people seeking their own glory. A lot of people were resentful of Paul. They were trying to uh, disrupt what he was doing or draw attention to themselves instead of what he had taught or he had written. It's a lot like the NFL draft, right? Before the NFL draft, there's all this information that flies around. By the way, anybody else mystified by the Seahawks picks, right? Pete and John are brilliant. I'm sure they got it right. But I'm like, they're drafting. I'm going, who? What? Huh? That position? Why? Right? So I've learned long ago to quit second guessing them and just let them do it. But... Uh, it's the NFL draft is a lot like that. It just you don't know where it's going half the time till they actually pick people. And then you go, 
Well, that wasn't who I wanted her to pick. So, But uh, th- this is causing confusion on what Paul had previously taught them. And he says three things. He, said, he says a spirit, uh, a spoken word, or a letter. A uh, spirit would be a word from the Lord, a word of prophecy. Someone would say, I have a word that's different than what Paul said. Here's a word from the Lord for you. And Paul said, you know, even if they say that, don't, don't buy into it. And uh, by the way, all words from the Lord are not words from the Lord, right? You can test them and we, I think we know. Then spoken word. Spoken word would be a teaching. Somebody was teaching a different emphasis or a different slant or a different take than what Paul had and it was throwing them into confusion. In this case, it seemed to be saying that the day of the Lord had already happened. So they're like, well, wait a minute. How, how did that come about? And then uh, a letter... Uh, this letter seems to be a false letter claiming to be of Pauline authorship that was throwing them off. Uh, kind of like, oh my goodness, now what do we do? This is actually from Paul. Right? You ever get something in the mail that looked like from the IRS? <gasps> right? And then you read the fine print and go, oh, it's an advert. Man, right? They, they had that adrenaline hit. Okay? And so um, the last one was probably the reason, the letter was the reason why Paul shot off this second letter within weeks of Second Thessalonians because uh, he was upset that somebody was counterfeiting what he had written. And, um, and so this is where most scholars think that Paul began to sign his epistles with his own name. Paul had uh, an eye disease, and so he would write and say, notice it's my handwriting because look at the way I signed my name. In other words, it was bad, but you knew it was him. All right? He couldn't write. There was big letters, and that way it authenticated, and that's what uh, um, they thought. So as bad as it was, you knew it was his, and you knew it was authentic. Let's go on a little bit back to um, where we were reading. It says, let no one deceive you in any way. In other words, one of the things Paul was concerned about is the ability to be deceived and taken away from a true faith in Christ. And so he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Again, uh, could be the man of sin in some other translations. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There's two very clear images here that are delineated by Paul in these uh, two verses. First of all is the rebellion, and then the second one is the man of sin. Paul says, hey, the day of the Lord hasn't happened because there are two things that will precede it that have not yet happened. And I want you to be aware of what they are. Uh, Much has been made and written about this man of lawlessness or sin. Uh, We know him as the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, all the, if you're in the 80s with all the music, right, ACDC and all that stuff, you, you have Hell's Bells and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we laugh and joke and, uh, you know, Black Sabbath and that kind of stuff. And there's all these kind of things that went on. But it's a fairly common idea, uh, even uh, in people who don't go to church, talk about it, 666 and uh, that sort of stuff. We're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, this week I want to concentrate on that first part, the rebellion because it's different than what most of us think about. Something goes drastically wrong before the parousia. And it doesn't have to do with the world. It has to do with the church. The church goes sideways. And something tips. And they, don't, they do not respond well. And by saying they, I mean we. 
right? And so it's something that Paul wants to warn the Thessalonians about, and he wants them to stand firm. It's something that we are to be warned about and stand firm uh, just like they were supposed to. So I think this point points directly in our direction. Let's look at this rebellion. Rebellion, if you look at it, it says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Uh, rebellion, if you look at that word, the Greek word is apostea, or we would know it as the word apostasy, right? An apostasy would happen. Uh, some other terms for it, uh, the great revolt, the great falling away, or not a very flattering one, the great betrayal, are all terms that have been used for it. Uh, so many are worried about the Antichrist and what will happen when he comes and that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm much more worried about us and how we will respond. When I say us, I mean the church again corporately. These terms that are used above here, as you can see, those are not good terms. All right? That is not um, positive would be a good word for it. They single uh, a lack of faithfulness on our part. And when we talk about this, we're talking about something that rolls out in a series or succession and increases as it rolls out. And so it increases in, in its intensity. So Paul's saying this rebellion, this falling away, will precede the parousia or the coming of Christ. Uh, in the same way, uh, how are they connected? Uh, I, I want to suggest it's a lot like the Rose Bowl, right? If you watch the Rose Bowl, you have the Rose Bowl parade, right? And then right after the Rose Bowl parade, what do you have? You have the Rose Bowl game. Right? Everybody goes in the Coliseum and you have the Rose Bowl and it's Washington again, right? And uh, you didn't get that? Okay. Um, But um, they are two distinct events and yet they are tied together. So in essence, they're one and the same, although they have parts together. Um, The man of lawlessness or Antichrist, he is more commonly known, will be around during the rebellion. He, He will be present but he will roll out as that takes its natural course. And uh, it would be very much like in politics where they start throwing out candidates and then you start to hear one person's name, right? And you don't pay much attention to it because you've never heard of them before. But as the campaign goes along and as different people make their points, all of a sudden somebody emerges out of nowhere and reveals himself as the key candidate. That's kind of how uh, this person will reveal themselves. Another way to look at it is just uh, like spring starts in March. And most of the time when spring starts, especially around here, we don't think of it as spring, right? It's still winter because it's dark and it's gloomy and it's wet and mossy and soggy, and right? We have that feeling. But it's actually spring. But then two months later, all the flowers roll out. Like right now, you know, the roadies are out and the azaleas are out and it's just gorgeous time. And um, so the the same thing, this will roll out Uh, as the rebellion rolls out, the apex of it will be that the man of sin will be revealed. So the day of the Lord can be spoken about as a single event, but within that single event, there's really a series of events that telescope into each other as it rolls itself out. We'll talk more on that next week, but for this morning, I want to take a little closer look at the rebellion. And the reason is, is because it was a deep concern of Jesus's. He talked about it. He talked about it in several different places. He illustrated it. He used some parables about it. And uh, he wanted uh, people to take attention to it. Let's take a look at that. If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24, 
I'll only have a part of it up on the screen here, but I'm going to start with verse 3. So the disciples had come to Jesus and they had wanted to know uh, privately, could you tell us when these things would take place? Jesus had been talking about uh, what we would commonly refer to as the end of the world. And Jesus answered them and said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And certainly there have been many people through history who have purported to say that they were him. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's not a mystery to us. We live with that. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. We're living in the midst of that, even as we speak. And all these are but the beginning of birth pangs. So Jesus is saying there's going to be a series of things that roll out, but then once the birth pangs start, then some other things will kick into gear. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Another word you could use there is persecution. And they will put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. A lot in there. Let me pull three things that he says in terms of symptoms within the church. Okay, We're not talking about the earthquakes and all the stuff outside. I want to talk about particularly the symptoms that raise themselves up within the church. First, he says, many will fall away. This apostasy uh, is understood, according to Unger's Bible Dictionary, as an act of a professed Christian who knowingly and deliberately rejects revealed truth regarding the deity of Christ. It is an apostasy of faith. So there is going to be a great falling away uh, of people from Jesus but not just people who don't know him, but people who claim to know him uh, will begin to crack under the pressure and start moving the other way. The second thing is that they will betray one another. Of all the one another passages, and there's a lot of books, uh, Gene Getz, uh, Love One Another, and lays out all the one another passages in the New Testament that it talks about how we're supposed to take care of one another. This is not one that we should emulate. All right, This is not... Um, one we should participate in in terms of betraying one another. And then the last one says they will hate one another. All right? What are we talking about here? What, what is, is Jesus wrestling with? What was Paul talking about? As the screws of the culture get tightened, we begin to throw each other under the bus and attempt to save our own hide. It's called butt covering. You ever done that when you were a kid, right? Your dad comes in and said, you do this? No, Billy did it. Right? Or no, Dad, the neighbors ran in, right? And kind of stuff. And, and we'll do anything. Uh, I know that was true of my dad. I'd come up with anything not to be caught by my dad. And, uh, you know, it isn't my fault. And, and you do it so you can escape out and, and not get caught with the consequences. Uh, that happens in a culture. I read a book. Adam gave me a book uh, called In the Garden of the Beast by Eric Anderson. And what that is a story of Eric Dodd, who was an ambassador to Germany before World War II. So like in 1932-33, so about 10 years before. And it's the story of what took place in Germany before World War II. And what they called it in Germany uh, was being coordinated. 
and being coordinated, what that means is when you have a culture, in most cultures, 80% of the people just want to be left alone and live life, right? They really don't want to be contentious. They don't want to be in conflict. They just want to be left alone. But on either side of that 80% is 10 or 15% that is um, intense. They are radicalized. They want to change the culture. They want to change that 80%. And, uh, and so what you begin to do is those 10 or 15% on either side begin to agitate and they start redrawing the lines. And as those lines are redrawn, you have to decide which way are you going to kick. Uh, that's true of every political campaign we have in our country. And what's the primary tool they use in a political campaign? Fear. You elect this person, you're all going to be booger noses. You'll be broke, you'll be bankrupt, you'll be living on the street. Are you kidding? This person's a monster. Right? And they try to intimidate you with fear. Well, that's what they do. And so in this process, the lines get redrawn. And in the redrawing of the lines, the pressure increases. It ratchets up. And so suddenly, as the pressure ratchets up, uh, you may be okay if the level's two to four. But suddenly, if the pressure shifts from four to six, it's a lot more concerning. If it shifts from six to eight, that's really concerning. If it goes from eight to ten, I'm not sure I can take it that far. And most of us have not lived with a lot of pressure in our Christian life. And so the question becomes, what happens when the screws get tightened? How will we respond? And make no mistake, enormous pressure can be exerted. Uh, Just read about cultures where that's happened. Uh, It is a frightening thing. And some of the insinuations here is that as we butt cover, as we throw others under the bus to protect ourselves... There's a couple things that happen. One, we begin to betray each other. So loyalties are busted. And then it says we will hate each other. How is it that Christians, people who proclaim the name of Jesus, could come to the point where they hate each other? Well, it comes when you start to apostatize. Uh, How this works is there's a story in the Bible of David. Uh, David had a son, and he, Ammon, and he loved his sister Tamar. And so he raped her. And it says before that, he loved her with an absolute undying love. But then after he raped her, it says the hate that he had for her was greater than the love that he had for her. And so he despised her. And so what happens is when you turn on the things that are your convictions and your principles and and the things that shape you, you turn on that. You not only despise yourself, but you end up despising others who represent that or remind you of that. And so then in what used to once be love in a group, hate can break out very quickly. And what Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, what Paul, what Jesus is talking about to his group is saying, don't do that. Stand firm. Look, forget about the bus. I'll take care of the bus. Just stand in faith. Hang in there. Stay true to your faith. Don't become part of the apostasy. Hebrews 6 has a frightening assessment of this condition When it says in verse 4, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding Him up to contempt. And the real issue there is holding Jesus up to contempt. 
And so we are challenged as we see things change to stay true to holding up Jesus as Lord. To stay true in our faith and to hang with that. We're challenged and encouraged to endure to the end. We must not give up on our faith that we have placed in Christ. I want to show you um, another place, the issue of the heart of losing faith here. Jesus talked about it again. Um, He tells this parable, and it goes like this. He says, uh, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, You know, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, the word is pestering, right? She just kept nagging him. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming, her continual haranguing of me. And then Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous just says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. But then he adds this little caveat. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's saying things will get hard. Things, the love of many will go cold. When he comes back, will he find anybody who's standing in faith, who loves him? It's a fair challenge. It's a fair thought. And he's looking around and he tells this story about the, this woman with the judge. Now, that's not a, a flattering picture, but it is a picture of one who constantly comes to the one who has the ability to do something and demanding that they do it. We call that in the Christian life what? Prayer. Right? Coming to God, to the judge, and asking him to change, uh, make a change in our circumstances. And so the two ideas of standing firm in the faith and praying are, are really tied together. And so part of the encouragement is that we would continue to be people of prayer. I have banged the drum for a long time, will continue to bang the drum for a long time, that husbands and wives, you should be praying together. The statistics are that 80% of all couples do not pray together. Again, that does not mean they don't pray. It means they don't pray together. If you're here single this morning, you say, ha, good, I'm not married, I don't have to pray. No, wrong, nice try. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Yes, you do. But particularly couples are supposed to pray together. And you say, when are you going to stop Talking about that, you're driving me nuts. I will stop talking about that when you start praying together. All right? The hardest thing, this sounds strange, and I know it sounds strange, and it's strange for me when I tell other people, the hardest thing to get Christians to do is to pray together. Isn't that weird? You would think it's the most natural thing we do together. It is not. There is some kind of built-in resistance. We would rather hang on to our offenses. We'd rather hang on to the um, slights and the things that we hold against each other than to humble ourselves and pray. And as a result, we don't pray. It's hard to fill up the board for 24 hours of prayer. You want me to pray for 20 minutes? Boy, super Steve, uh, Steve you're just super spiritualized, you know? I can't, I, you know, I, I tried to pray the other day, but then the phone rang and then the dog got on my lap and then the neighbor knocked on the door and then I fell asleep. But I intended to. 
And we never get to it. Thursday night, we have the National Day of Prayer. If this guilt trips you, great. Okay? That's what you're paying me for. Awesome. We have the National Day of Prayer, and we do that. Last year, you know how many we had come to the prayer meeting? Thirteen. Where is faith going to be if we aren't praying? That's what Paul's talking about in this apostasy. We stop doing what we're supposed to do, and it falls apart. I'm going to ask the guys to come to forward for communion and begin to serve. Uh, just take the elements. We'll, we'll wrap it up together. Uh, for communion, all we ask is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ to join us, all right? But um, as the guys come forward, I want to look at one last passage with you as we think about this apostasy and rebellion and Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians that they would be different and not cave into that. This is found in 1 John. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Jesus says, If you love the Father, you'd love Me. I and the Father are one. No man comes to the Father except through Me. Because He said we're we're the same. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. I want to come down here too. Then up on the screen you can see, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What overcomes our world? What's the peace that keeps us from caving in? What's the peace that keeps us from going apostate? What do we have to keep in front of us? What's it say up there? Our faith. Can you keep your faith centered if you don't pray? I would suggest not. If you are, you're the exception to the universe. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? As we come to communion this morning, I want you to think about that and think about the important role of faith has in the life of a believer. You know, our culture has already voted, right? Jesus is not God, he's out. That's how it's rolling right now. You realize that sitting here this morning, you are perceived as foolish. You are perceived as not having a brain. You are perceived as hanging on to old legends and myths. And it's going to get worse. That's the nice part. It'll get stiffer as we go along. And in the midst of it getting harder, we are encouraged to hang on to our faith. That's what Paul was saying in this letter. Hey, here's the things that are going to be coming down the pike. Don't get rattled. Don't get shook up. Don't get filled with anxiety. I told you about these things. You should know about them. Stay tied into the faith. Stay tied into prayer. When Jesus, and when it comes to communion, Jesus gave us a beautiful picture, and there's so many different pictures that roll out of it, right? I mean, uh, I've done a number of them with us, and you can go, but this morning I want you to think of it in terms of Jesus himself when it comes to communion, a picture of target. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus said, do this in memory of me. Right? We know that as communion. This is his body, right? Broken for us. This is his blood shed for us. Do this in memory. Here's why I want to suggest it's such an incredible picture. Jesus never asks us to do anything he hasn't first done himself if we are to go through hard times 
Jesus went through it before us. If we're to go through persecution, Jesus went through it before us. If it's going to cost us our life, Jesus went through it before us. And so when we come to communion, we have an incredible picture. Jesus says this, I was faithful to you. Right? History records he was. Here's the question though. Are you faithful to me? Or will you be part of the apostasy? And I want to suggest that was written, not that we would be part of the apostasy, but that we would be faithful to him and be standing. That's why scripture says, look up as he's coming. Look to him when you see the signs. Anchor your faith harder. Stand firm as you know he's coming. So if you're going to take communion this morning, what you're saying is, I will stand firm. I'm going to stand in my faith. Jesus said, this is my body. It was broken for you. He says, eat this in memory of me. Then he took the cup, and the cup says, it's a symbol of his shed blood. Hebrews says, again, that um, you have not yet come to the point of shedding your blood for the gospel. That may, not be, that may change. That may become true in the future. Do you trust him? You know, it's often said, if you don't know what you'll die for, you don't know what you'll live for. Do you know what the target is? Do you know who you place your faith in? Do you know what you will die for? You do. He says, drink this in memory of me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and help close us out in worship. We're going to sing an old song, and, and you will know it. Most of you can sing it with your eyes closed. And there is a line in there that's very familiar to you that says, the Lord has done good to me. Does that mean because the Lord has done good to you, nothing bad will ever happen? Anybody as a Christian have bad things happen to them? Right? Okay. What Romans says is not all things that happen to us are good. What it says is God will turn all things that have happened to us into good. Right? I want you to think about that in terms of worship this morning as we sing together. Would you stand?